Well, good morning. It's good to see each of you. I want to encourage you to now turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. I'm looking forward to starting a new series today as we begin to make our way through this Old Testament prophet, this Old Testament book of the Bible that I believe has much to say for us even today. So we'll be spending probably the next 13, 14 weeks or so going through Daniel. And uh, as I said this morning, we'll be looking at chapter one, the entire chapter. And so I'm looking forward to this book and with all anticipation of going into this book, let's stand to honor the reading of God's word if you're able. I wanna read Daniel chapter one, beginning in verse one. This is the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. The end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before King Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray.
Father, teach us from your word. Give us understanding of it and help us to apply it. Lord, we ask this not for our sake alone, but for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So how do we live as Christians in a world that is opposed to us? How do we live as Christians in a world that stands adamantly opposed to the Christian gospel? Or as one scholar put it, how can we Christians sing the Lord's song in a strange land? This was perhaps one of the most difficult questions to answer as a believer. After all, Jesus clearly told us that we were to live in the world but not be of the world. So how do we live when our Christian culture collides head on with the worldly culture around us? Christians have sought to answer those questions in a variety of ways throughout the years. Two popular approaches have been fight and flight. Take on the culture head on, fight against it. Seek to forcefully change it by any means possible. Others have chosen the flight response and have sought by every means possible to remove themselves from the world. So how do we live if we're to be in the world but not of the world? If, how, how do we live when our Christian culture stands completely opposed to the culture around us? Well, friends, I can think of no better place to look than in the book of Daniel. Daniel documents a period in Israel's life when they found themselves in exile. Jerusalem had been besieged by the Babylonians and a good number of people had been taken into exile. This was kind of round one of three rounds of deportation. This was phase one of that besiegement. So now Jerusalem's besieged. A number of people are now taken into exile, including Daniel. So, so Daniel and many others find themselves in a foreign land, surrounded by foreign gods, living in a foreign pagan culture, ruled by an evil king. Think about that. Let the context settle with you for a moment. A foreign land surrounded by foreign gods, living in a pagan culture ruled by a pagan king. Friend, isn't that very similar to our experience? While we may not share the same experience of Daniel exactly, we too live in a strange land. This is not heaven. We too are surrounded by countless idols in the culture. We too are bombarded by and confronted by and impacted by a very toxic, anti-Christian culture. 
culture around us is doing all that it can to squeeze us into its mold. It not only wants us to accept its worldview as valid, but it demands that we embrace and celebrate it as right. One scholar wrote a book entitled Resident Aliens by describing exactly how it is we are to live in this world. And that's what we are. We're resident aliens. This is not our home. And yet this is where we are in the present. So then how are we to live? How are we to live under such constant pressure? What is it that you need to know to live a life of faith in a world that belittles and rejects your faith? Well, friends, Daniel has much to say to us. The book of Daniel has much to say to us as it serves us as an encouragement to persevere in our walk with the Lord. And when we even look to the life of Daniel himself, we will see Daniel as an exemplary figure in this book. He's he's one who stood firmly as a man of God in the midst of a very difficult, chaotic culture. But the purpose of Daniel is not to point us to Daniel so that we would dare to be a Daniel or something like that. It's not the point of the book. The hero of Daniel is not Daniel. The hero of Daniel is God. And so the point of Daniel is not to point us simply to Daniel, but to Daniel's God, so that we would see God as Daniel saw God and respond to the the pressures around us in a way, yes, like Daniel, but most importantly, centered upon who God is. So here in chapter one, we're presented with four points of instruction concerning how we as believers are called to persevere when having to face a culture that stands opposed to us. This morning, we're gonna look at four points, four truths of instruction. We're gonna look at a reminder, a caution, a resolve, and a blessing. Those are the four points we're gonna hang our hats on this morning to understand life, as resident aliens in a culture that's, that's not our own, but how we're to persevere as the people of God. We're gonna see it through a reminder, a caution, a resolve, and a blessing. Let's begin with the reminder. The first two verses of Daniel chapter one, we are given the historical setting of this book. It's the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, and the Babylonians attack and carry off Jehoiakim and many other people in Judah, including Daniel. You can read the historical account of this in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses five and following. So we have a pretty specific date when it comes to when this happened, so 605 B.C., six centuries before Christ, we, we see the, the historical setting. But not only are we given a historical setting, we are also given a theological setting or a theological explanation of what's taking place. You know, if you lived in Babylon in these days and watched the Babylonian nightly news, maybe that's BNN, 
You would have heard reports of how King Nebuchadnezzar had approved forces to attack Jerusalem and how the powerful Babylonian army had been victorious. Celebrations taking place back at home in Babylon. And while that was true, while it was true that Babylon flexed its mighty arm and ransacked Jerusalem and ultimately in three phases destroyed it and took all of the people into exile. Daniel gives us a different angle, doesn't he, in verse two. Notice what the text says. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. While this was indeed the work of the Babylonians seeking to do Jerusalem harm and to people of Judah harm and to take them captive, ultimately, this was God's doing. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand, it tells us. See, the Babylonian attack upon Jerusalem was God's doing, but not without warrant and warning. All the way back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, verse 14 and following, or you can see it again in Deuteronomy, chapter 28. God, time and time again, had warned his people, listen, if you do not live in accordance with the covenant, if you do not live in a way that is faithful to me, I will send an enemy to destroy you and to take you captive. Couldn't be any more clearly stated in a prophecy that the prophet Isaiah gave in Isaiah chapter 39, in one of the final warnings to the people of Judah. It says, Isaiah 39 verse six, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. And some of your own sons shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This was the Lord's doing as a means to discipline his own people for their own wickedness, their own idolatry, their own rejection of God. This was the result of God's sovereign activity in response to the warning and promise he gave Israel if they did not repent of their evil, idolatrous ways. So while the Babylonians were celebrating their victory and rejoicing in their strength, they could not have overthrown one stone in Jerusalem had God not sovereignly enabled them to do so. Friends, I want you to think about that fact in light of the many overwhelming circumstances and trying situations that we find ourselves in today and throughout the entire course of human history. Friends, this is a reminder that God controls the entire course of human history, even when it involves the defeat and downfall of his own people. It's likely that as these waves of deportation took place, 
many an Israelite began to wonder where God was. How could God let this happen? Where is God in the midst of this atrocity? But he would let this evil nation of Babylon come and destroy us. Where are you, God? What are you doing? How could you let this be? Indeed, the psalmist often cries out to the Lord, Lord, do you not see? Lord, do you not hear? Do you not understand what's going on? Lord, are you, are you aware? No doubt many of the people of Israel were wondering this as they were being carried off to Babylon. And here we have Daniel saying, oh, God is full aware. God is full aware. And God is absolutely present. Friends, the book of Daniel is a megaphone reminding us that God is in complete control of not just your life, but the many details, countless details throughout human history. Even when cultures and situations around us seem to indicate otherwise, even when the, the circumstances in our own context are, are telling us or, or tempting us to question the presence and faithfulness of God. Daniel is here to remind us that God is present and God is faithful. You may not feel that way, it may not seem that way, but it is a fact that it is that way, that God is present and God is faithful. If, if even the sparrow in Matthew 10 verse 29 does not fall to the ground apart from the providence of God, it certainly is true that his reach, that his sovereignty reaches to the very details of your own life. Whereas this truth ought to give us hope and enable us to go on in faith that God is present and God is in control. That's an encouragement. Number two, we see a caution. The reminder is that God is sovereignly present. The caution, though. We see the caution in verses three through seven. So in God's sovereignty, Daniel and thousands of others now find themselves in Babylon because God was faithful. He was faithful to his promise, wasn't he? He said, listen, he, he gave them warning after warning after warning after warning after warning. And then he did, just as he said. And so now Daniel and the others and highlighted here from this passage are Daniel and three of his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Here they are, now even called upon to come to the king. The king, we're told in verse three, commands his chief eunuch Ashpenaz to bring some of the people of the royal family, the, the, the statesmen, the, the, those of royal noble birth, those who, who were strong and educated and able, skillful in all wisdom, it says, endowed with knowledge, to come and stand in the king's palace so that they could be further trained, so that these strong, intelligent Israelites would now become strong, intelligent Babylonians. 
And Daniel and his three friends were among those chosen for this intense process of transformation and re-education. What I want us to see here from what they experience, I think is helpful because it highlights many of the things, although differently, many of the things I believe that the believers throughout human history and certainly even today, kinds of things that we face. I think it's helpful to consider the strategy here of Nebuchadnezzar employed against Daniel and, and the others because it informs us often how the enemy is at work today. Just see just kind of four steps here that I believe Nebuchadnezzar takes very intentionally in re-educating these Israelites. One is isolation. You know, in the defeat and downfall of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar could have left them there just to struggle. He could have made them POWs or he could have killed them. But instead, he takes them captive to Babylon. You see, the strategy is intentional. Instead of wiping out the Jewish culture completely, he takes some of those brilliant and capable minds of Israel and brings them to Babylon, away from family, away from their friends, away from the temple, away from the holy city of Jerusalem, and now seeks to brainwash them into becoming faithful Babylonians. So it's a take them away from everything that they know so that they can be transformed into this new culture, a new way of thinking, this new worldview. Which leads me to point number two, we call it re-education. Notice in verses three and four, we're told that they were to be taught in the literature and language of the Chaldeans. In other words, they're to be re-educated in a pagan worldview with a different language that had no room for the true God. Now, when you think about being taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans, that doesn't all, it doesn't seem like all that bad of a thing, does it? I mean, it's not a bad thing. It's not a sinful thing to learn different languages and different cultures and different ways, even to learn about different religions. Even our missionaries that are sent overseas and across cultural context go through a very, very intentional process of learning cultures, learning different religions and backgrounds and customs and all of those things, different languages. But the difference here is that Nebuchadnezzar was taking them through this, this education process for three years, we're told, to totally assimilate Daniel and the others into this culture. So he isolated them he was indoctrinating them. And then three, he was asking them to compromise. We're told that they were also served, verse five, the king's food and the king's wine. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to why Daniel ultimately resolved that he would not defile himself. But I think that this was just yet another attempt to wine and dine them, right? so that they could just be won over by the extravagance of Babylon, so that they would grow less and less dependent upon God and more enamored with this amazing new culture. After all, we know that a way to a man's heart is through his stomach, right? And then number four, this reassociation. He's isolated them, he's indoctrinating them, he's asking them to compromise to be won over, the extravagance of Babylon, 
But then number four, they were given Babylonian names. It's likely that if I were to ask you who Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah are, you might not get it right. But if I were to ask you who were Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego are, oh, I know who those guys are. We actually know them by their Babylonian names, not their Israelite names. So they were given new names, just another tactic to indoctrinate and assimilate these men of the culture. Think about what's going on here. You know, day after day after day, if you're now hearing your new Babylonian name, it's going to, over a period of time, influence you. This is this process to totally transform these men into what, from becoming what they were to, to becoming something totally different in a new culture, and a new way of thinking with a different worldview. King Nebuchadnezzar is brilliantly attempting to transform these men by obliterating every thought of Israel's God and Israel's way of life. Now, friends, while the tactics may be different today, isn't that what we often face? This world and the God of this world, Satan, little g, is striving to do the very same thing, to obliterate any thought of God or biblical worldview from our thinking. Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Or Paul puts it this way in Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See, even in, even in our own generation, we see an attempt to obliterate any thought of God or biblical worldview that we have. The devil is prowling around like a rhyme, and, and, the, and the world is seeking to deceive us and to, to take us captive by philosophy and empty deceit to, to transform us into something else. And friends, you need to get this. This is where so many Christians fall. They don't enter any given day consciously aware that they have an enemy that stands not only opposed to them, but an enemy that is actively pursuing them. Do you realize that? Do you realize that you have an enemy, a real enemy, that's way more powerful than you are? Not more powerful than God, but more powerful than you, that is seeking to bring you down. Anybody tell you that this morning? Did you wake up thinking about that? And friends, it's not getting easier. If you're depending upon the culture or some kind of Christianized version of America to save you, you will, you will go down in flames. Because we are no longer, I don't know that we ever were, but we're certainly no longer the majority in this country. We're no longer encouraged to just be tolerant of, the, of other viewpoints. We're now, it's being demanded upon us to celebrate them and to embrace them. 
is one of the most prominent places, I believe, for secular evangelization today. The secular world trying to evangelize us is, you can find it all over the place, but I think it's prominent in our colleges and universities. Many of our children and grandchildren are coming out of them more and more shaped by Babylon than they are the Bible. And that is true for Christian universities and colleges as well. Just a little side note to us parents. One of the things that you need to help your children do when you're looking for colleges and universities for them to attend, when you're getting all the financial aid forms out and you're getting all of the the application forms out, you need to get list of all the healthy churches in that local area out. What Christian campus ministries that they can be plugged into? And if none of those exist, I would close the file on that one and move on. Well, that's kind of strict and so... (laughs) Just telling you, Babylon has a stronghold today in many, many places. And if if we're aware that there is a powerful, determined enemy that wants you and wants you for himself, then we will take every means necessary to fight against it. Many times it's through persecution, but oftentimes it's more subtle. As we're slowly but surely seduced, deceived into forgetting God. And before we know it, we become a faithful Babylonian. One scholar put it this way about our enemy. His fundamental goal is always to obliterate our memory of the Lord to re-educate our minds to his way of thinking and to instill in us a sense that all the good things in life come from the world around us and from satisfaction of the desires of our own flesh. And you have a real enemy. And if you're not conscious to that fact, you're exactly where he wants you. But then we see a resolve in this text. We see a reminder that God is sovereign. We see a caution that there's an enemy with a real strategy that's seeking to do us harm, to bring us totally transformed to to his way of thinking. But there's a resolve here. We see in verse eight, but Daniel resolved, determined in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. And he went on. See, while the king was intentionally implementing this scheme against Daniel and the Israelites, Daniel and his friends were implementing a plan of their own. Daniel was not sitting idly by as King Nebuchadnezzar was seeking to bring his own way of thinking. His own way. Notice Daniel's approach here. And by the way, notice Daniel's approach is neither a fight or flight approach. Daniel didn't get out the swords and start, you know, attack mode. He was already defeated. He didn't try to escape. Rather, he sought to work within the Babylonian system that he now lived in.
just a reminder that, that Daniel's resolve here was that he was resolved to be holy before God. He was resolved to be faithful to God and, and he was going to do that within the place in which God had taken him, even if it was Babylon. Verse eight, we're told that Daniel resolved or purposed in his heart that we would not defi- he would not defile himself with the king's food or drink the king's wine. Now, this could have been partly related to the Jewish dietary laws, but honestly, everything in Babylon would have been defiled. So I'm not sure that that's what's going on here. I don't think this was just, they can't eat the food because they're Jewish. I mean, that's probably not the case. And it certainly, unless he was a Nazarite, they weren't forbidden to drink wine, unless they had taken a Nazarite vow. So I don't think that it had to do with Jewish dietary laws. More likely, Daniel was rejecting the king's food in order to maintain a simple lifestyle so that he would be constantly reminded that his dependence was upon God. This was a choice that he made, resolve that he made in his own heart, that I'm not gonna take this food, I'm not gonna be won over by the extravagance of Babylon so that I'll forget God. He simply didn't wanna be distracted from his devotion to the Lord. He was making a stand that his trust was in the Lord and in not, some Babylon, not, not in some Babylonian king. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way. He said, always take the first opportunity to show yourself a decided Christian. Isn't that a good word? Always take the first opportunity to show yourself a decided Christian. I think that's exactly what Daniel's doing here. He's taking the first opportunity that he has in a pagan culture ruled by a pagan king standing in a pagan palace, and he's taking the first opportunity that he has to show himself faithful to God. What a great reminder us. You know, Jonathan Edwards, great American preacher here in the 1700s, he's known for his famous 70 resolutions. I encourage you to, to read them sometime. Just Google them. Edwards put them online before he died. You can see them. They're helpful. Just a couple of them. Let me read a couple of them to you. Resolved never to do anything, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. Resolved, never to give over, nor in the least slacken, my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. And there's about 68 others. Just resolution after resolution after resolution that he is standing firm on the truth of who God is, on the truth of God's word, that he will stand firm in faithfulness, not in his own power, not in his own strength. It's not the force of the resolution that's making that, that, that uh, giving that ability to obey God, but it's, it's just being consciously committed to and determined to faithfully follow God. And friends, we need to build into our daily routines Constant reminders of who we are and how dependent upon God we truly are. And that's gonna look different from time to time in our lives on what we choose to do and not do. It's gonna look different for you. We're not legalists. If you want legalistic church, we can give you a list and you can go find a list of rules and do's and don'ts in other churches. We want to be faithful to the Bible. 
And so we wanna just be obedient to God and, and that's gonna be fleshed out in different contexts, in different ways. Though Daniel lived in a different culture, was given a different name, educated in a different worldview, he did not forsake his identity as one who belonged to the Lord. And I just ask you, are you resolved to obey God like that? Do you have the same kind of assurance Daniel seems to have when facing a world that stands opposed to you? Sometimes I think that we buy the lie that we just can't live effectively as believers in this world and culture. So we either give up and build monasteries and, and, and hide in our little Christian bubbles. But friend, we can't do that. While we do live in Babylon, so to speak, we have a responsibility to stand with the Lord. You know, I want to remind you that, that this, this, this idea that we're to kind of run from culture, certainly there's sin that we should run from. But this idea that we should just get out of culture and, and go build our, our Christian whatevers, words are failing me right now. It, it's not a biblical idea. In fact, I want to take you to Jeremiah chapter 29 and show you the prophet Jeremiah wrote to Daniel and others in, of Israel while they were in Babylon. This is what Jeremiah the prophet writes, inspired of God, recorded for us in Jeremiah chapter 29. This is a letter that Daniel would have received and the, and the thousands of others there in Babylon. This is what Jeremiah the prophet says to them. These are the words, Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter of Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoi, uh, Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials in, of Judah and Jerusalem, craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. A little later after Daniel, but still the same people. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Shaphan and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said that, here's the letter. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. See if, see if in this letter you hear Jeremiah saying, hide, dig your head in the sand and just pretend the Babylonian culture doesn't exist. Let's see what he says. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray, pray, to the Lord on its behalf, for its welfare, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. And listen, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. By the way, I think it's helpful to hear verse 11 in its proper context. It's not a verse you just slap out of its context and God's gonna bless my future. He was saying that to Israel regarding their exile and placement back in the promised land some 70 years later. We're gonna apply it. We might wanna apply it just more eschatologically to think about that God, if he was faithful to bring them back to the promised land, God's gonna be faithful to take us home and to put, for us on the, put, put us on the new heavens and the new earth. That's what that text means. So we can't fly away. We can't just run away and pretend that evil doesn't exist. We're here. We're right here, smack dab in the middle of Babylon. You thought this was St. Mary's County. This is Babylon. And we need to give ourselves regularly to the means of grace that God has given us to help keep, to be mindful of our identity of who we are and our resolve to obey God. That's why we need the local church. That's why healthy Bible preaching congregations are not just a, extra option for you if you have time. It's essential to your life as a Christian. Even in college. We need other believers. We need our Christian community. We need the Bible. We need to be reminded. We need to be fed. We need to be held accountable. We need to be instructed because I'm telling you, the worldview you're getting out there is radically different than what you're going to get from here. And if you don't know this well, you're gonna be carried away quite quickly. The fruit of it's everywhere. Friend, Babylon is so attractive. It is so attractive. The wine is so good. The food is so tasty. And yet it is absolutely deadly. But then we see a blessing as we close. Reminder that God is sovereign. The caution that the enemy is active. All right? We've seen those two. And then we see here in this text, Daniel's resolve to be holy before the Lord and to be faithful to him. But then a blessing. As Daniel and his friends stood faithful in their resolve to stay devoted to the Lord, they were rewarded. Do you see that in verses 17 through 21? God gave them learning and skill, not just in Chaldean literature, but in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So much so that notice by the end of the time that the king had commanded for this time to be, they're brought to stand before the king. And among them, verse 19, none was found, not even the Babylonian, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They stood before the king in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them. He found them 10 times better and all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. God was faithful to bless faithfulness. While Daniel remained faithful to God, we've seen that God remained faithful to him. 
And God's favor included placing him and the others in a very unique position as, as advisors to this evil king. Maybe that's your biblical verse for Christians going into politics. Jeremy will cover that in the Christians in government class, I'm sure. And there, Daniel, we're told, notice verse 21, this is not incidental. It's kind of like a, just a, oh, by the way, oh, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Do you know when that was? 70 years later. So as a teenager, Daniel is put in this position under Nebuchadnezzar. He's faithful to God and God blesses him. And for 70 years, he sees the king of Babylon rise and the king of Babylon fall. The Persians come in and a new king. And there's Daniel. Kings come and kings go, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but God's people stay forever. Let that encourage you, friends. If God was able to keep Daniel and these others faithful in an extremely challenging place, then he will keep you faithful too. Friends, we've not been taken by force to Babylon like Daniel. We were born there. We were born there. And as a result, we must remember that God is sovereign. We must be cautioned that the enemy, Satan, ultimately is active. And we must be resolved by the grace of God in our faith. And we must remember that God will reward and that God will bless. When you get to the book of Revelation, we find Babylon mentioned again. And I think Babylon in Revelation is merely just a symbolic description of the pagan world and culture. That's why I can say we live in Babylon. But I think we serve us well to be reminded that this Babylon is going down. Listen to Revelation chapter 18. Verse one, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then verse 21, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. The sound of the harpist, the musicians, the flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. Light of the lamp will shine no more. The voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery and in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and all who have been slain on the earth. Friends, one day Babylon will be no more. But God's kingdom will be forever. So let's live in this world as resident aliens of those who have to live life in Babylon. But let's do so whose citizenship doesn't rest there, 
but be reminded that our citizenship is in heaven. Let's be faithful to that end, to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word and for this truth. God, would you help us? Would you help us to live in the midst of this culture as those who belong to you? God, would you give us wisdom? And would you give us clarity? And would you give us boldness and confidence, Lord, in you as we seek to be faithful to the things that you've called us to be and the things that you've called us to do, that your name would be glorified, that, Lord, our, the resolve of our hearts would be to stand firmly in the truth and to follow after you. God, would you protect us and would you keep us faithful and see us home? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.